0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I had a funny experience uh, yesterday, which was I went to the Happy Minion. During the day, I wasn't there Friday night, and someone said, Oh, the speaker Friday night told your story about from the one I said last week. So I thought well what am I going to say during the day and I thought ah I'll just tell the story again so I did and I'm going to tell the story again for you guys because it's just such a way out story and and I've had some more thoughts about it and I'll throw in some details that I didn't include last time and also we had some technical difficulties last week so a lot of people weren't able to listen to it so so I'm just gonna run through it one more time, and just because it was it was such a revelation to me, and just about how God can absolutely do anything at any moment, and and such a wonderful reminder of that. It just just how far-reaching that that is. So, so here's the story. I had just finished my Purim Suda, which means I had just drunk a bottle of wine and was going straight to the airport. I, I wasn't driving, of course, got into a, got into an Uber. And this was the first step in, in the complete sort of unwinding of my possessions. And I don't know if I highlighted this point the last time we talked about it, but I'll just run through it this time. For the first time in, I think, 35 years, I forgot my Tollison to fill in at home before I traveled. And I'll just tell you, just as an aside, I didn't grow up religious. I didn't grow up putting on and tefillin. But when I was ten, eleven, twelve, and thirteen, I went to camp Rama for the summer, and 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 they the, the bar mitzvah boys put on tefillin there. So my last summer there, I put on tefillin. So I, I had a pair of tefillin, and I'll tell you, all all the years before I started putting it on on a, on a daily basis when I was 24, whenever I'd go away someplace, even though I never put, a, put it on, I put it on during the summer and, and that was it, I always took it with me, even if I was gone for a weekend or something like that. Because I thought, who knows, maybe today I want to put it on and I won't have it with me. And so it's kind of a funny kind of a funny image, right? A kid who's not religious, like going away for the weekend and taking tefillin with him that he doesn't put on. But I guess tefillin's so holy, and and I really recommend it to everyone who's out there. It just, it's, I think, the best bargain in Judaism, by the way. And it's, this is one of those man mitzvahs. There, there are, if, if a woman is absolutely motivated to do it. There, there are ways that a, a woman can do it, but talk to your rabbi about it if you you just have a driving desire to do it. So so certainly women are not excluded. But nonetheless, I'm just encouraging anyone out there who isn't putting it on every day, absolutely put it on every day, you, except for Shabbos and holidays. You have no idea like what's going on. Just It's just beyond, 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 beyond. So anyway... I forgot my talisman to fill in. Then, when I landed, I left my computer on the on the airplane. Okay. Then there was a car waiting for us. I left my hat in the car, and then coming back, I left my shoes in the house that I was staying. <laughs> and I I thought about that after the fact, and it, it, it's it's pretty comprehensive. You ready for this? My hat and my shoes were left behind so that's head to toe <laughs> and then my tefillin and my computer that's that's your soul and my computer I'm a writer that's my body so body and soul head to toe were all dissembled in the makings of this story so so there you go just everything just was becoming unraveled so after we landed, going from Shul to, to the place whose who's home I was going to for their son's bar mitzvah, and I got into the Uber, I put in the, the Uber address, and the, the man says, 20 Piamenta Lane. And I said, no, 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 20 Pomona Lane. And he goes, oh, oh, okay, okay. Now, as you can see, my state of mind was completely frazzled. I was totally exhausted. By the way, I got my computer back. Like two days later, we filed a, a, a little notice to the, to the airline before Shabbos started when I realized that I had lost the thing. And I'll tell you something else, something unbelievable, which is before I left, I had a script due that day, that Friday. I had a script due and I didn't have my computer. Before I left, I thought to myself, I should email the draft of this script to myself just in case. And then I thought to myself, why, why, why am I going to do this? It's one in a thousand. And then I thought to myself, no, 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 go ahead, just do it, just, just do it. So, can you imagine when I landed, and I realized I didn't have my computer? I was like, oh, no, no worries, I, I have it. So, just another chazdei Hashem, as we say, just, just the, the the endless kindness of God, just amazing. So, and then I got my computer. Mozi Shabbos after Shabbos, I, I turned on my phone, I, I checked my messages, and they said, we have it. And so I gave them, I just put in my credit card for $30 and they FedExed it to my house. So amazing, 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 amazing. So anyway, the home where I was staying was six minutes away from where I was at the moment. But I didn't know it at the time. So I get into the Uber and then I fall asleep. (laughs) And I wake up a half an hour later in another county. Okay. And... He says, we're here, and I know instantly we're not there because my friend lives in the middle of the woods, and we're on just this very typical suburban block. So I know for sure we're not in the right place. He says, no, it's 20 Pimenta Lane. I said, no, I told you, 20 Pomona Lane. He goes, oh, oh, okay. So I said, please turn around. So he he turns around. Now we're on this suburban block. We go for about a block and a half down this, to the main road of the town, okay? So now we hit the first commercial street. And then I see a sign that says Valhalla Cemetery. And I realize he's he's driven me to my parents' burial site. And I can't believe it. I mean, I had no idea we were even in the vicinity. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I haven't been there for years. All of a sudden, I'm where my parents are buried. I say to him, stop the car. And he keeps on driving. I said, stop the car. And he stops the car right in the middle of train tracks. I said, what are you doing? He said, you said stop the car. I said, not in the middle of train tracks. Go, go, go. So then he, he hits the gas, he goes, and then I say, stop the car. He stops the car, I get out. And I have a a general idea of where my parents are buried, but I'm not positive. I I can't quite find it. I call the front office, and I'm standing there on my phone. The front office is maybe half a mile away or something like that. The woman on the other end says, okay. I give her my parents' names so she knows where I'm trying to get to. She says, what name do you see? And I said, well, there was a big tombstone in front of me that said Mishkin. She says, which Mishkin? So now I look down on the ground, the footstone. I said, Sadie. She says, Sadie, Michigan. Okay, take a right. So I start walking. She says, now what name do you see? And I give her that name. And I'm getting directions through the cemetery by the names of the dead. I mean, it's just so wild. And then I see my parents' headstone. And I remember that my wife told me that there's a custom, a minig, that that you if there's like a celebration going on, like a wedding, something like this, that you there's a tradition to go to the cemetery and to invite your your parents. And and so, my my son, God willing, is is getting married soon, and I, I called up the the uh, the invitation on my phone, and I i. I invited my parents to to the wedding. And almost always, I call my son. He, he hardly calls me. And a minute maybe, after I invited them, he calls me all of a sudden. I see. It's amazing. And then, every Erev Shabbos, I give my children a brucha, right? We say, birkas kahanam. And... And then I say, they say Amen, and then I say I love you. It's kind of what we've fallen into. So it's, it was Erev Shabbos, and I said, I said Moshe, I said all three of us are going to give you the bracha, okay? Because I'm standing right in front of their, their, their tombstone. And I said, I said the bracha over. And he said Amen, and then I said, we love you. Right. And people ask me, like, what, what were you feeling? What were you feeling at the time? And the words I remember using to describe it was that the impossible happens in real time. The impossible happens in real time. And to me, it was such a, enactment in its own way, and we're going to go deeper into this. I'm going to use this as a launching point to go into this next topic. But but how Mashiach is going to come. What it's going to be like. Because I couldn't believe this was happening as it was happening. And yet there was this seamless transition of real life into this other real life event. But this other real life event that was like on a completely different access point. Like you have the X axis and the Y axis, and then you have the Z axis, right? This is coming like, this was from the the, like the, <laughs> the Nth to the 12th axis. You know what I mean? It was It was directly flowing from my present reality, and yet, we were in a completely different place, a completely different zone. And yet it was real. It was happening. 100%. And so there's going to come a time where we're going to hear a sound. And we're going to go, what is that? A burglar alarm? Construction? What is that? What is that? No, no, no. It doesn't. No, it's not, not a burglar alarm. It's not. It's not construction. It's a car alarm. What, what is that? And we're going to realize it's the great chauffeur blast of Mashiach. And that's what it is. One moment ago, we were checking an email. We were taking a sip of coffee. As real as real can be, as normal and mundane as mundane and real can be. And the next moment, we're we've entered into the next stage of reality and it's absolutely seamless one is going to go right into the other i was thinking about it in these terms also let's 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 talk about the greatest work of art in existence so you could say well that's very subjective right this person loves matisse this person loves shakespeare right this person loves whatever else it is music. He loves Chopin. So it's, it's very subjective. How are you going to decide what is the greatest work of art? Come on. But let me make a suggestion that is absolutely the greatest work of art. (laughs) Right? That might be, that might be bold, but wait till you hear my answer. How about existence? How about existence? How about the universe itself? Can anything even remotely compute with that? I mean, remotely? Nature? <laughs> I mean, all of nature, all of physics, right? All of reality, all of biology, all of chemistry, <laughs> all of it under one rubric called the universe, reality, existence. Is there anything even that can even remotely approach that? You say, well, what about the works of Shakespeare? How about the one who made Shakespeare? What about Beethoven? What about the one who made Beethoven and created music? <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no competition. The universe itself is the greatest work of art. Now, let me ask you this. Now, just as Reb Shlomo would say, open up your hearts, okay? Listen to this. Would the greatest artist, and the Talmud, by the way, we're not being chutzpahdik by calling God an artist. The Talmud calls God an artist. Would the greatest, most perfect artist abandon a piece of art before it was finished? There are many religions, believe it or not. I believe they're called deists. They believe there's a God who created the world, and then you're ready for this? Abandoned it. Would the greatest, most perfect artist not finish? No, it's impossible. It's impossible. Is it possible that God is not going to finish creating the universe, that he created the universe in this broken way with war and hatred and hunger and suffering? It's impossible. It's impossible. And all of those elements all testify to the fact that it's not finished yet, which is what Torah says. We're still in the middle of the creation of the universe and God created us to be partners with him to finish the universe itself. In other words, if anyone has a challenge believing it, approach it from the aesthetic level. Approach it as art. Think of it as art. The perfect artist will finish his work of art. It's just logical, right? God is divine. He didn't create a problem that he couldn't solve. People encounter problems that they can't solve and then they give up. Do you think any problem is too great for God? So there's nothing stopping him from doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Try to be connected to that God who can do anything at any moment. And to live on that plane of existence. But with one caveat, don't have any expectations. Because if you have expectations, what's going to happen? You're going to get frustrated and angry. And this is gonna be a formula for spiritual collapse. But if you live with the reality, which is the truth that God can do anything at absolutely any moment, and you don't have any expectations, man, that's a formula for a beautiful life. <laughs> okay. So so I wanna tell you something. For many years, I taught the following. And then I've been privileged to be learning this unbelievable Sefer. It's called the Pischei Sharm. Very, very holy book, extremely holy book. And, and it, it deepened a teaching that I've said many times and clarified it. The way I expressed it for many, many years is that just like an architect imagines the finished house, And then sets about to create it. But first, before he sets about to create it, he has in mind the finished product. So too God had in mind the perfected universe. And then set about to create it. And we're in the middle of that process right now. Remember the word Breshis, And the Zohar says, that's the first word of the Torah, out of beginnings, or commonly translated as in the beginning, which is not the proper translation but out of beginnings, right? That's I heard from Rebbe, Rebbe uh, Shlomo that in the name of Rebbe Shimon Bar Yochai that it means out of beginnings, meaning that the entire world is literally made out of beginnings, which means every single moment is a new beginning. Do you understand that? Every single moment is literally a new beginning because the world is made out of the fabric of beginnings. I can't tell you that without telling you the story that goes with it. Because when I heard that teaching from Reb Shlomo, he said the following. Classic story from Reb Shlomo. I was privileged to hear it from him directly, I think even more than once. Amazing story. One time he was sitting on an airplane, and he was sitting next to a Christian gentleman. And, and Reb Shlomo was learning a, a Torah book in Hebrew. And the man next to him asked him what it was and everything like this. And Reb Shlomo explained to him that the word Breshis, I guess they maybe that's maybe it was that time of year that Reb Shlomo was learning Breshis. I don't I don't know why they were discussing this point in particular. But Reb Shlomo told him that Breshis means not in the beginning, but out of beginnings. That every single moment is a new beginning. Well, cut too much later, this man had a big downturn in his business life. And he decided that he was going to kill himself. And so he locked the door of his office. And he had a gun. And he had a question that I hope none of us will ever, 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 ever ask ourselves, which is, huh? What do you do in the moments before you kill yourself? And so he thought to himself, I guess I should learn some Bible. And so he took out a Bible and he opened it to the first page and it said, in the beginning. And he remembered the rabbi that he was sitting next to on the airplane who said, no, it means out of beginnings, that every single moment in life is a brand new beginning And then he said to himself, if every moment is a brand new beginning, what am I doing killing myself? And he put away the gun. And he continued with his life. And he started a spiritual community. And he invited Reb Shlomo to visit there. And Reb Shlomo did. And he told him this story. It's a true story. So the entire Torah, the Zohar says, is contained within that first word out of beginnings brachis, and the first letter of that word is very very remarkable it's it's a large letter base and the whole word brachis is contained within that large letter base <laughs> and guess what there's a dot in the middle of the letter base and guess what the entire torah is contained within the dot within the base <laughs> That dot stands for the divine wisdom out of which God created the entire world. And now listen to this. In Pirkei Avos, it says, God spoke the world into creation. With ten sayings, God spoke the world into creation. And you have got nine vayahis, like, for instance, vayahi or, which in Hebrew means, let there be light. So the Vayahi really translates as, let there be. So there are nine, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be man, all, the, all these things. But guess what, there are only nine of them. And yet we say with 10 sayings, God created the world. Do you know why? The Talmud explains that the, the first utterance of creation was the word Breshis itself. Now, why would it be different? Why would it be Brashius instead of another, let there be? And I had a thought, and thank God a million times, it's, the Pisgah Sharm says this, the Zohar says it, which is that that first saying is completely locked. (laughs) You see, if it says, let there be light, and then there's light, well, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? but there's a level about the initial steps of creation that remain a secret. It was a saying, but it remains a secret. Why? And that's why it's in a different language. That's why it's brishis instead of vayihi. It's locked. You see, Reb Shlomo says there are two two types of secrets. One type of secret is after I tell you, so for instance, if I say, that guy over there, blah, 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 Okay, now something you didn't know before. So now, by the way, but then there's the second type of secret. If the second type of secret is, after I tell you the secret, you still don't know the secret. <laughs> so, so I'll give you an example. The second type of secret is, wow, the world was created. God created the world. Well, now the secret, but you still don't know the secret. How did he do it? It's a secret. I know the secret, but I still don't know the secret. That's why the 10th utterance, or the first utterance of creation, is the word vreshis. It's locked. It's locked. It's not Vayahi or, and then there's light. It's not straightforward like that. It's just beyond, 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 beyond. All right. So we know in Pirkei Avos, it says that that God spoke the world into creation with 10 utterances. But Reb Shlomo says God sang the world into creation. And this is what I want to talk about now. I want to talk about music and storytelling and our lives. Music, storytelling, and our lives... And that's why I wanted to tell you that story about suddenly, out of nowhere, being driven to my parents' grave while I was asleep, for goodness sakes. And what that has to do with the coming of Mashiach. When, when it comes, it should come soon. I'm not saying that that's a sign of the coming of the Mashiach. But what I'm talking about is the nature of how events unfold. And, and it'll be more clear what I'm getting at in a moment. What does it mean that God sang the world into creation? And by the way, there's just one of my all-time favorite Torahs from Rabbi Trugman, who said that if you look at take all the letters of Breshis and you rearrange them, it spells the word Shiraz Olive Bays, the song of the Olive Bays. And we know that God created the world out of the Hebrew letters. Okay? And remember, just on a deeper level, Each of the letters are like different energy wavelengths. So God created all these and combined all these energies to create the universe itself, which is something that when you get into it, Einstein gives us the math to, this Torah idea that we've had for thousands of years. But these energy wavelengths are signified by the Aleph base itself. So the word breishis, right, which is really like the initial moments of creation, is Shiraz Olive Bass, the song of all of these energies that God combined to make the world. Unbelievable, right? Now listen to this. I found yet another beautiful support for singing and creation. And now let me go back to a point that I was making before, and you'll see how everything fits together. Okay? So the architect envisions the finished product, to begin with, just like God envisioned the perfect world. And then he sets about to create it. Okay. All very good. But now here's the extra element and the sharpening of our understanding of, of the meaning of life, if you will. That the Pizchei Sharm, Rav Yitzchakai is is giving us. The end goal of creation, listen carefully, the end goal of creation... Was not the creation of the universe itself. The end goal of creation was for the creation of the human being. In other words, the universe is just the staging ground for the real goal of creation, the human being, to exist. Do you understand? That's one step further. It's not the end goal was not the universe? The end goal is the human being, Adam, Adam. And remember, Adam means man or woman. It just means the human being, Adam. Okay? We're going to get into the word Adam in a moment, and you're going to see something amazing. So, so the end goal is the human being. And remember, how I always tell you that everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. The amazing thing is the human being is a microcosm Of the universe, so the end goal of the universe is the human being, and the human being themselves is a microcosm of the entire universe. That's these are far out thoughts. If you if you think about them, all right. Now listen to this. The word Adam says the Piskei right? This holy work of Kabbalah. The word Adam is gematria number 45. Now, this is hinting at, this number 45. In other words, what we're going to do is get now on the the deepest, deepest level, a peek inside of the ingredients of a human being, the divine energies that go into the composition of the human being. Okay, you ready for this? So Adam is the number 45. And how do we break that down? We're going to break it down into three parts. The 22 letters of the olive base. Oh, okay, well, that makes sense since so God made the universe out of the olive base, out of the Hebrew letters. And man is a microcosm of the universe. So, okay, the 22 letters, great plus the 10 nakudos; those are the valizations. Okay, now that's very, very deep. And I still have to learn more about the true meaning of what the nakudos are, okay? But it's the valorizations at the very, at the very most simple level, it's the ability to speak because what distinguishes a human being from every other creature is our ability to speak. But it's deeper than that. I'm telling you, that's just the most surface level. So we've got the 22 letters. That's the olive base. This is the ingredients of the human being. You ready? The 10 nakudos. And now listen to this. The 13, because 13 will now bring us to the number 45. The 13 musical notes that you chant the Torah with. The 13 trup the 13 different notes, the 13 cantilations in English. So the 22 letters of the Aleph base, the 10 Nakudos vowelizations, and the 13 musical notes that you use to chant the Torah. Now, what struck me so deeply about this was the presence of music in the creation of the human being. Do you see that that's absolutely one of the main ingredients of what it means to be a human being? Is this incorporation of music? Of singing? And remember, God sings the world into creation. So to speak, he sings human beings into creation. Okay, so now I wanna go deeper. You see, there are two types of, let's call them narrative structures. Okay. One narrative structure is a story. It has a beginning, a middle and an end. Or let's look at it this way. Let's look at the structure of prose as the arrangement of sentences right? Because that's that's what a story is. It's one sentence after another sentence after another sentence after another sentence. Okay, great. But another structure is the song. <laughs> a song has a completely different structure to it. And what better way to prove it than to look at the Torah scroll itself. Do you know that that every time there's a song in the Torah, the way it's written in the Torah is completely different than all the other verses of the Torah. They're written like bricks, like building blocks with large swaths of white fire in between the black fire of the words. And if you look at uh, the song of the sea that we sang after the crossing of the Red Sea, if you look in a Chumash, most Chumashes will have it written in the Hebrew the way it is in the Torah. It's a completely different structure. In other words, when it comes to the storytelling of a song, the rules of the narrative are completely different. I'll say that again, because this is the main point that I'm making right now. When it comes to the storytelling of a song, the rules of the narrative go by a completely different set of rules. So when we mention the 10 sons of Haman, who are hung at the end of the Megillus Esther, look at the way it's written in the Megillah. It's you have their name and then you have a giant stretch of white space and then another name, and a giant stretch of white space. So in other words, this miraculous occurrence, which is, how is it that this person who builds this gallows that's 50 amos tall, right? Which was meant symbolically to go to the top of heaven, because we have the Shar Chamishim, the 50 gates of heaven. The idea was was Haman was taking the battle straight to God, to the top of heaven trying to eradicate goodness. He's going to hang Mordechai, like the the greatest person alive, from the top to show that Haman is dominant. And then from from that same pole, Haman hangs. And his 10 sons, it's a miraculous reversal. But the way it's recorded in the Torah is not like the rest of the Megillah is recorded, which is in this, these narrative lines where it just reads one line after another, all of a sudden it's written completely differently. It goes into that musical reality. And while I don't know that there's a chant that we sing it in, there is a very strong um, custom that you say it all in one breath. And so that's something within the category that we're talking about. It's slightly different because it's not music. But nonetheless, you see the musical aspect in the way it's written. Now, if I tell you that the entire world is made out of the fabric of the Torah, and if I tell you that the Torah calls itself a song, the Torah is a song, and the Torah is reality, then that means our lives are a song, and we ourselves are made out of music. Okay, we still haven't gotten to the point yet. How could it be that I fall asleep in a cab and I wake up by my parents' grave? Because the rules that life goes by, the storytelling that God is doing with the conducting of our lives is going by a completely different rhythm than normal storytelling. It's a completely different set of rules that have been built into the story of our lives and the story of this world. Different set of rules. So it says nine songs have been sung and we're waiting for the 10th song. <laughs> and if you, if you roll a Torah scroll, it's mostly all the prose type storytelling. And then all of a sudden you get to a song and it changes. But the whole Torah is a song. And we're waiting for the 10th song. And what's going to happen at the end? It's going to go into song format. (laughs) And it's going to be proof that the entire thing has been a song the entire time. How can there still be a Jewish people? It doesn't make any sense that we're still around. According to narrative logic. But not according to song logic. (laughs) I once heard Reb Shlomo say, the world doesn't work on a one plus one equals two level. <laughs> and we all know this from our own lives. We all know it. Something was a sure thing and it didn't happen. Another thing was like a, a, a wild long shot and it did happen. And we're constantly butting up against this. Right? Why? Why? Because the storytelling that God is doing in terms of the conducting of our lives is through music, through the narrative logic of the song, which is a completely different order. One of the greatest miracles that ever happened in history, since it happened on the holiday of Pesach, of Passover, it's good just to get it out there one more time. One of the mighty ancient kings was named Sencheriv. And I'm sure you've all heard of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. So the reason why they're lost was because of Sencherev. So you just picture a map of Israel for a moment, and you've got the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel. The northern part's on the top. The southern part's on the bottom. And the majority of Jews lived in the northern part. That's where the 10 tribes lived. And as Sencherev came and was conquering the known world, he vanquished northern Israel, where the ten tribes were, and scattered them about. One of the techniques that Senecharev used in terms of his empire building was to uproot people from their land. In other words, it wasn't enough just to crush them militarily and then to enslave them under, you know, a dictatorship, basically, but he wanted to completely exile them. And his logic is very interesting and insightful because he said that people who are on their homeland will fight harder for their homeland. And we're seeing Senecherev's insight play out in the newspaper headlines today. You see that the Russian soldiers coming into Ukraine are not motivated, and you see that the Ukrainians themselves are highly motivated because it's their country. And that has been the way it's been throughout history. So Sennacherib exiles the 10 tribes of Israel. And by the way, our Messorah, our tradition, is that, that, that elements of the, each of the, those 10 exiled tribes continue to exist among the Jewish people. It's just we no one knows what tribe they're from anymore, unless you're a Kohen, okay? So, or a Levi, which is this, the same family. So in southern Israel, though, you had the Holy Temple, and you had a, a, a smaller population of Jews there. So now picture this. Senherav and his army are right on the border. They're about to finish conquering the Jewish people. They've already vanquished 10 of the 12 tribes. And now they're about to finish off the Jewish people. The king at the time is named King Hezekiah. All right? At midnight... On Pesach, God sent a plague and absolutely vanquished the army of Sennacherib. It was a complete and total miracle. Total miracle. And the Jewish people were saved. One of the greatest miracles ever. In fact, how great a miracle? This could have been the end of days. This could have been the war of Golgumagag, The apocalyptic battle. This, I'm speaking, I'm telling you what the Gomorrah says, how the Gomorrah describes it. And let's go even further. And again, I'm just telling you the words of the Gomorrah. King Hezekiah was meant to be Mashiach, the Messiah. This this was it. This was the whole end of days playing out right there. So why wasn't King Hezekiah the Mashiach? And why wasn't this the final great battle? ushering in the end of days? You ready? Because after it happened, King Hezekiah didn't sing. Do you understand how everything boils down to a song? Everything boils down to a song. Because a song takes you to a completely different dimension. A song, if you want to think of it in terms of physics, it's a quantum leap. It's a quantum leap to the next to the next dimension of reality. Singing does that, and that's what I was trying to explain to you in terms of just the, 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 the neurology of it within our brains that it accesses a different dimension, a different part of the brain, just like singing can take you to a different. Level of reality itself. So, it's important to sing. And and it, it really is like you should have a song on your lips. You you really when you walk down the street sing, right? When you're in your house sing, when you're at the Shabbos table for sure sing, for sure. Now let me tell you a story, so that you kind of maybe better understand what I'm trying to say here. I'll tell you a memory of growing up. My mother's mother, we called her Nanny. She was from Ukraine, from the Kiev area. And when I was a kid, this will be a baffling reference to anyone who's younger, but, but the older people will know these names. She used to love to watch the Merv Griffin show and Mike Douglas. And as a young child, it, it was so hard for me to watch these shows. <laughs> just these older people who I didn't know, just sitting talking about things that I had no knowledge or interest of whatsoever. But I have one such a happy memory of lying next to her on my mother's bed. This was my grandmother and she was watching the mike douglas show and he had a guest on mel tillis he was a very interesting figure he was a country western singer and he had a terrible stutter and i remember as a young kid watching this show you know and feeling so bad for this man and wondering like what's going on like here he is on this national broadcast and he's stuttering terribly And then he started singing. He was a country-western singer. And when he sang, he had this magnificent voice. He was a big star, by the way, big recording artist. And not a trace of a stutter. And it was this remarkable thing. Like when he sang, he was completely healed. And then, I don't know if they said it on the TV show or if my grandmother explained it, But even as a young child, this piece of information I'm about to tell you always stayed with me, which is that when a person sings, they access a different part of the brain. And I'm still absolutely fascinated by that. And so allow me to just express this in my own way, but music is accessing another dimension. That's what it is. It's within our consciousness. It's a different part of our brains. It's another dimension. And the world itself is going to transition into this other dimension, which is this dimension of a musical logic of musical storytelling, which doesn't obey the rules of the narrative form. We have seven notes in the musical scale. So, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti. That's seven. And of course, seven is the language of nature. We know that the world was created in seven days. There are many, many sevens. And, and of course, it, it corresponds that the music of this iteration of existence would be seven notes. But the Torah teaches that when Mashiach comes an eighth note is going to be added to the scale. Isn't that something? Like the nature of music itself is going to become more exalted because it's going to reflect the new exalted reality that we inhabit. And now, going back to what I was saying earlier, that the first letter of the Torah is simultaneously the number two and the number eight. In other words, that next Music of reality is already being hinted at in the first letter of the Torah. So it's not just the song we're singing, but the song that we're about to sing and the song that we are all at once. And I just want to wrap it up by telling you one more point of this. I told you that the Zohar says that the entire Torah is contained within the word Breshis. And I heard in the name of the Vishnitzer Rebbe from Reb Shlomo that all of Breshis is contained within the dot of the letter Bez. The Pischei Sharm brings that as well. The letter Bez is written in a large way. Now I learned from Rabbi Wolfson in the name of the Chasim Sofer that any time you have a large letter in the Torah, it's four times the gematria, of a normal letter. So now let's think about this for a moment, because the letter Bays written normally, is the number two. And remember, the letter Bays is our gateway into our present reality, because it's the first letter of the Torah, which the Zohar says is the blueprint of reality. So we all enter reality, so to speak, through the letter Bays, which is the number two. OK, so what is the meaning of the number two? Well, the revealed and the hidden. That's a good description of reality, isn't it? How about heaven and earth? How about good and evil? How about male and female? How about the physical and the spiritual? How about the written Torah and the oral Torah? Okay, so we understand the number two. But let's think about the fact that it's a large letter base which means it's four times the number two, or the number eight. Ah, the number eight is very different. (laughs) The number two is the very description of the laws of nature. The number eight means beyond nature. Do you understand what's going on? That with the very first letter of the Torah, the very first foundation stone of reality... Of existence, God was imbuing creation with the miraculous. He was implanting the normal order of creation, the narrative flow, if you will, and the musical flow <laughs> simultaneously at the same time with that large letter vase. Because at the same time, the letter vase is the number two, And the number eight, because it's a large base, which means it's the normal order, the logical order of creation of, quote unquote, nature as we know it. And at the same time, simultaneously, God is planting in the miraculous, the musical order of existence, all at the same time. It's all there. We don't know what's coming next. And for many of us, that's the bane of existence. But you know what? It can also be the joy of existence. I remember last week we had a question at the end of our our, the session. Someone said, basically, I'm afraid of the unknown. And I said back to them, instead of saying the word unknown, why don't you substitute the word infinite? Right? It's true you live amidst the unknown. That's true. But maybe a truer expression of that thought is that you live amidst the infinite. I'm always rem- reminded of a review that I read in the in the New York Times. It was for the pilot episode of Deep Space Nine, which was one of the Star Trek spinoffs. And the crew of the Enterprise encounters aliens and... And the aliens say to the people, you mean you don't know what's going to happen next? You live within time? That must be so interesting not to know. (laughs) And yet, this is part of the glory of being a human being. That we don't know, but at the same time, we do know. We do know that there's a happy ending. We do know that there's a happy ending. Because every one of us has a share in the world to come, and the world itself has a happy end." And the answer is we just have to hold on till we get there. Just hold on and don't give up and just keep on going. You just keep on going. Because we genuinely don't know what's going to happen next. We genuinely don't know. And we can make that an amazing, exciting thing. We can make that, yeah, it's like, wow, okay, let's do it. Okay, what what are you bringing today? And you know what? That's going to make us appreciate every single moment also, even more. Because who knows what's next? So I better enjoy right now. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.